Good morning. Thank you all for being here on a Memorial Day weekend. It lifts my spirits to see so many. I wrote uh, an email. Uh, Pastor Fleming sent me a, a, an email or a text message or something Wednesday uh, or Thursday saying this, this, this. I emailed him back and said, I'd love to. Um, right now, I don't have time to visit. Uh, uh, I've got to go write my lesson on predestination. And he emailed me back and he said, you were elected before the foundation of the world to write that lesson as I was elected to go eat a dinner of da-da-da-da-da and all this wonderful food. Ha-ha-ha, David Fleming. (laughs) Thank you, Pastor. Growing up, I had several passions in high school. One of my passions uh, was the Lord. Uh, Another passion I had was high school debate. And those two passions were shared by a friend of mine named Dan Daniels. And Dan and I uh, found the toxic combination of loving to argue and loving the Lord. Because that enabled us to argue about the Lord. And argue we did. We argued about everything. We argued about worship. We argued about... Uh, scripture. We argued about baptism. We argued about the Lord's Supper. We argued about predestination and free will. But now predestination and free will was kind of a dicey thing to be arguing about. It was kind of dicey because one day I'd be on this side and he'd be over there. The next day he will have persuaded me and I'd get over to his side but I had persuaded him so he would have taken the side I had the day before. Some days we'd both be on the same side and some days we'd both flip and both be on the other side. A dicey subject. Dicey because of passages of Scripture like this. Consider first Romans nine fifteen through 24. Romans nine fifteen through 24. Here's what Paul says. Paul says... God says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So, then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. That's a pretty tough passage. Pretty tough passage. And so we discuss this passage. Does this passage really mean God picks whom he chooses to have mercy on? But then there are the other passages. Passages like Matthew 23 verse 37. This is a passage where Jesus is about to go into Jerusalem. And before he goes in, he says, this is our Lord Jesus talking. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. The city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you would not. You would not. I would have. I'd have gathered you. But you wouldn't. And so we'd sit there and we'd struggle back and forth with these passages. 
and we try to figure out which one stood for what and what they meant. And in the process of that struggle, we land in different places. So now you may not want to participate, but it's class participation time. I want an honest showing of hands. And if you don't want to show your hand, you can keep it down. If you don't want it to be obvious you're keeping it down, you can raise your hand both times. You may want to raise your hand both times anyway. How many of you believe, just cold question, no explanations given, you can't sit there and say, well, please explain to me what you mean by. No, this is it. How many of you believe in predestination, God picks who goes to heaven? Raise your hand. Isn't that interesting? How many of you believe in human responsibility and choice that we make the decision whether we accept Christ and go to heaven or not? Okay. Very interesting. We have a substantial number on one side, a greater number on the other, and a good bit of you that raised your hand both times which is thoroughly acceptable for either reason I detailed earlier. With that, I want us to do a couple of things this morning. The first thing I want us to do is compare the difference between Paul's day and the thinking then and the thinking in our day. Because we think about this issue of predestination or choice. I don't think you'd have raised your hand if you hadn't thought about it to some degree. And even though we may not be the most philosophically and historically literate people, some of us are, some of us are not. We're in varying degrees on that, and that's fine. But all of us, whether we know it or not, have absorbed into our teaching the teachings of the church over the last 2,000 years. Very few, you can't listen to David's sermon this morning without having the effect of years and decades and centuries of church teaching that have gone into the resources he uses to prepare his sermons for us. Make sense? So even though you may not know Calvin and his writings well, you may not know Luther, you may not know Philip Melanchthon, even though you may not know the writings of John Huss or Thomas Aquinas or St. Anselm, even though you may not know the writings of Augustine well, those people have written on this issue in ways that influence the way we see the debate and the way we think about it. What we've got to do, I think, to be fair to Paul and to be fair to God's holy word is first understand why Paul wrote what he wrote before we engage it into our debate that's framed in our heads after 2,000 years of church history. Make sense? So one of the ways we do that is we go to the writings of Pliny the Elder. They call him Pliny the Elder, not because he was an elder in the church. He wasn't. He's just older than his son, Pliny the Younger, who also wrote. So the scholars call him Pliny the Elder. He was uh, born in 23 AD, so probably 10, 15 years after Paul. 
He died uh, in 1970, uh, 1979. In the year 70, that fellow was 1960 years old. His back had started hurting him there the last couple of years. Um, no, he died in 79 AD at the eruption of Mount Vesuvius. Kind of famous. He was there to make observations. Because you see, Pliny was a writer. And I brought one of the editions of his books. This is his Natural History books one and two. Pliny was a writer who wrote in Latin. He was actually a German military guy and then he worked for the government for a while but he decided he would write a complete set of what it is to, that we know about the world. This is sort of history and book two of his 20 some odd book series talks about the universe and what we know about the universe and weather and things like that. But in the process of it, he writes about God, or God's, plural. And I want you to understand this, because this helps us understand the way Paul's audience might have felt about things. It certainly helps us understand the thoughts of the day. This is what he says about God. That supreme being, that that supreme being, whatever it be, pays heed to man's affairs is a ridiculous notion. Can we believe that it would not be defiled by so gloomy and multifarious a duty? Do we really think that God... If there be one, he says that in another place, or God's plural, if there be some, would care about what we're doing, would dirty their garments by thinking about man, would get so caught up in everything. He continues. He says, we, humanity, are so much at the mercy of chance that chance herself, by whom God has proved uncertain, takes the place of God. You want to know what governs your life? Roll the dice. You want to see God? Roll the dice. It's all chance. If there's a God, He isn't paying attention, and He certainly doesn't give a rip about you. One last section from here. He's talking about a, a, a mob event that had happened. And he says, this series of instances entangles unforeseeing mortality. So that, and here's what I want you to understand. Among these things, but one thing is in the least certain. Only one thing certain. And that is that nothing certain exists. And that nothing is more pitiable or more presumptuous than man. There's nothing certain in life. Everything is chance. If there are gods, they don't give a rip and they're not paying attention. And the only thing certain... See, we've learned since then, now there are two things certain, death and taxes. That's what we say. He says, no, not even those. There's nothing certain except the fact that nothing is certain. 
Because the world in the time of Paul, where Paul was ministering and pastoring, the world was one of fear. Can the gods, if they exist, truly control anything? Can the gods, if they exist, truly care about what's happening in our lives? Will they be involved? Is there anything the gods might do in our lives? This is an uncertainty that existed in the culture that Paul ministered to. And as Paul goes out and teaches people about the Lord, they come to Jesus. But do you really think that they take an eraser and are able to remove from their lives all of the doubts and foundations and things they grew up with? The society and the culture in which they operate, can they erase it? Can they put stoppers in their ears and not hear the cries of their family and relatives who think, is your God any different? Now that you understand there is this God, do you truly believe He's any different? There is not a God who is active and involved in our lives and we should be scared to death of that fact and recognize that chance and uncertainty are our gods. That's what the people heard outside of Paul. This is the world where Paul pastored. He pastored in a world of fear and in a world of uncertainty. So now within that framework, with that mindset of his world, let's look afresh at some of his writings and compare what Paul's telling those people about God to what Pliny the Elder told people about God. I've got a few passages that we've pulled out and we'll try and make it through. First, Ephesians 1, 4 through 6. In Ephesians 1, 4 through 6, Paul writes as follows. Even as He, that's God, chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him in love. He predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace with which He's blessed us in the Beloved. This is not random. This is not chance. This is not, oh, God doesn't have time or effort or desire to sully His garments in my affairs. God picked you out. God chose you. He made a deliberate decision before the creation of the world to pay attention to your life. To be plugged into who you are. He predestined, He made a choice long before you were born that He wanted to adopt you as His child. God is plugged into your world. He is paying attention. He is in control. That's Paul's message. Very different than the message these people heard in the world. One they needed to hear. How else does Paul say it? Look at 1 Thessalonians 1.4. In 1 Thessalonians 1.4, Paul says, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you. These people needed to hear that God and their relationship was not some random chance game. God did not happen upon them and they did not happen upon God. 
their involvement and God's involvement in their life was not the roll of the dice that they were in the right place at the right time on the right day. It happened because God reached out and cared about them and wanted them. God chose them. Paul says in Romans 8, 28 through 30, We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. It's not random. It's not happenstance. It's not fearful. Don't be intimidated. Don't be worried. Everything works for good because these are people who are called according to God's purpose. Those whom God foreknew, the ones He knew ahead of time, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. He didn't just predestine you. He's chosen you ahead of time to to be like Jesus in order that he might, his son might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he called. And those he called, he justified. And those he justified, he glorified. God is taking you somewhere. He's not just involved and active in your life right now. He's taking you somewhere. Look at what Paul says in Romans nine fourteen through 21. A long passage, but it's one we started with, and it kind of puts it into a bit of context. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Heavens, no. God says to Moses, I'll have mercy on whom I'll have mercy. I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. So it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh... For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So God has mercy on whomever He wills. He hardens whomever He wills. Now, Paul is saying very clearly here that God is involved in our lives and in the world and in the circumstances of life. And we don't have to be afraid of anyone, even be it Pharaoh. God has control not only over His children, but He has control over the pagans. He has control over the authorities. God is in control. Now, some people might say, hold on, Paul. Or as he says it, you will say to me then, why does God still find fault? Who can resist His will? Paul says, but... Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Hey, why'd you make me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honored use and another for dishonorable use? If God wants to do it that way, you don't question the Lord. That's not the issue. This is Paul saying, that's not the issue. The issue is not, why did God do it this way? The point is, He has control. The point is, if you want to know what the world is like, the world is not a theological debate over predestination here. That's not the world Paul's speaking to. Paul didn't write that verse to engage us in theological debate about predestination. Paul wrote it 
to conquer the fear and uncertainty of the world in which he was pastoring and ministering. And if we lose the point of the passage, we're not going to do the passage justice as we try to plug it into our world. So let's preach Paul's message for a moment. Paul is saying the following, don't doubt, don't fear, don't say, where is God? Don't say, am I alone? Don't think that this is chance. Don't think that this is, is, is happenstance. Don't think that your circumstances are beyond His control. No, He has picked you out and chosen you and called you by name with the promise that He's going to make you like His Son and glorify you. He's taken you places. Paul's saying, oh, by the way, don't get cocky either. Don't think that you're going places because of who you are. Don't think you're going places because you're doing so good by God. Don't start thinking arrogantly that God is yours and you're going to heaven because you figured it out right and have put your faith in Him. It's all from Him. It's not from you. You've got no credit at all in this. There. So Paul says, this is the answer to that world. Now, if we were going to put this on a, on a, on a continuum, that's, a, that's one bookend. So this is the bookend, and this we'll call the chosen, or called, or predestined bookend. Okay, And then we have our, our life as a book. But Paul says there is another bookend here. Let's make this where we can get to the other bookend. The other bookend is, what happens when you start goofing off? What happens when you start goofing off? Paul writes about people who are goofing off. Let's look at them for a minute. We're going to set aside the doubting and the fearful bookend. We're going to consider those who are shirking responsibility. Paul has no trouble when people are goofing off saying, Stop it. This is what you're doing. Just cut it out. Paul has no trouble at all. Look at these passages where we see what Paul does. The Galatians, Ephesians passages. Look at Galatians 1.6. In Galatians 1.6, Paul says the following. He says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and you're turning to a different gospel. You! I'm astonished you're doing this. Paul doesn't say, I am astonished that God predestined you to turn away from the gospel and turn to a different gospel. And that you have no moral responsibility or choice in the matter whatsoever. You're being forced to do it. He doesn't say that. He says very plainly, look, I'm blown away by the fact that you igmos are doing this. That's just nonsensical. That's pathetic. Look how he says it in Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. We dealt with this some this morning. By grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. It's not a result of works. Don't get boastful. But we're his workmanship. We're created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared before him that we... What's that word? should walk in them. Not that you have to, not that you must, not that you're compelled, not that you're predestined, but you ought to. 
It's what you should be doing. You make the choice. You make the choice. You're going to do it or not? Uh, I didn't have a choice. I was competitive. No, you weren't. You chose it. You have a choice. He says it in Ephesians 4.1. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Yes, you've been called. Yes, God has called you. You've been predestined. You've been set aside. Now, act like it. Because what you, you decide. You pick. You're going to act like it or not. And that's what he says. That's what he says. So, that's what Paul's passages go to. I really think we've got to understand them in their context. But now, being theologians, and not just simply Bible students, we want to find out how that might apply to these big questions that we have. We can accept, okay, that's Paul in context, but now... How does that answer our questions? Because we got a few questions out of this. At least I do. So I'm going to combine and we're going to see if we can get Paul and fairly use his writings to some degree to answer questions in our day. You didn't know he had a cell phone. You want his number? All right. Here's my first question. Paul... Does God pick out who goes to heaven? Please make it a yes or a no answer. I'd like to write it down. To which I think Paul answers yes and no. Yes and no. And Paul would say, I did say pro orizo. And you'd say, pro orizo. I don't remember that word. Mark never had that on our Greek for the day. So maybe the Greek for today should be pro-orizo. Pro-orizo is actually two words that Paul put together. We don't really find it anywhere else. You don't really find it in the Old Testament translation into Greek. You don't find it in plain old Greek writing. He kind of made it up. He kind of did a, I won't say a George Bush, but he, he kind of strategized it. He, he kind of made it up. pro orizo the pro part means before. Orizo means to a determine or a point. This is the word our translators translate predestined. Because Jerome in the Latin translated it in the 400s, predestinare in Latin. Which means picked or appointed or determined beforehand. Paul uses it, and he uses it five times in the New Testament. Paul uses it in the New Testament in Romans 8, 29 and 30. This we've already looked at, but we can see it again. For those whom he foreknew, he also picked out ahead of time, appointed before, to be conformed to the image of his Son. And those whom he proorizoed, he also called. Those whom he called, he justified. Paul uses it in 1 Corinthians 2.7. Look at this. This is an interesting passage. Paul says, We impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before. That's the same thing, pro orizo, which God had appointed before the ages for our glory. This is something God had set out ahead of time, already decreed. 
Ephesians 1, 5 and Ephesians 1, 11 are the last two places where Paul uses it. Paul says in Ephesians 5 that in love God decreed before, predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ. And again in verse 11, he says, In Christ we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things, according to the counsel of his will. So this is where Paul uses it. And what Paul is saying is very much so, yeah, God picked you out ahead of time. He predestined you in the sense that he appointed you there ahead of time. But in the process of that, Paul doesn't shirk from saying it's still your choice. You've also picked God. God picked you, you picked God. Is God's choice for you irresistible? Is God's choice for you something you could not refuse? Paul never says that. Paul says, God picked you. Paul says, you picked God. So does God pick out who goes to heaven? Well, yes and no. God's predestined, but man is chosen. Now you're sitting there saying, well, that seems contradictory. I'm sorry. That's the depths and the riches of the mysteries of our God. Beware any teacher who stands up with all the answers. Okay? If, if this had been answered satisfactorily, it would not be debated today. But we've been debating it for 2,000 years, not just me and Dan Daniels in 1978 in Lubbock, Texas. And the bottom line is, is there's a mystery here. But God has done them both. God has chosen us. And when you are in a place of insecurity and you are in a place of doubt, don't ever doubt the love of God. Paul never uses predestination language to say, gee, you need to worry. Maybe you weren't picked. God, Paul, only uses it to say you don't need to worry. If you have embraced Jesus Christ then you've done it because God picked you. And you don't need to worry about whether or not God is involved in your life. He is. So shape up and act right. Because by the same token, you picked Him. And you don't want to turn your back on Him. And you don't want to live like some spiritual refugee. Paul says it this way. He says, think about Pharaoh. <laughs> oh, I didn't know. I didn't know Lewis wasn't going to be here. Oh, hey, Lou, I found that picture of you from vacation. God says, consider Pharaoh. <laughs> oh, hail Pharaoh Lewis. God says, consider Pharaoh. Paul says, consider Pharaoh. Look at this. Paul says, and Moses says in Exodus, that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. God hardened his heart. Well, who can blame poor Pharaoh? But Paul's a student. He's quoting Exodus 4. I'm sure Paul read Exodus 8 and Exodus 9, where the same writer says, Pharaoh hardened his own heart. They both happened. God hardened it and so did Pharaoh. Pharaoh can't say, well, this is so unfair, God hardened my heart. Well, you hardened your own heart. 
but God was in control. All right, here's another question I have of Brother Paul. Doesn't the scripture kind of indicate that God keeps people from hearing the truth and believing? Because I read that passage in Jesus where he says, Oh, I speak in parables so that the people hearing don't hear and seeing don't see lest they turn around and repent. Or how about that passage where Paul says something very similar in Romans 11, 1 through 8. And Paul says, Hey, look carefully at what I wrote. Don't you just go off helter-skelter here. Look carefully at this. Has God rejected his people? Heavens, no. I'm an Israelite. I'm a descendant of Abraham. I'm a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God didn't reject me. God's not rejected the people he foreknew. He knew about ahead of time. Don't you know what the scripture says of Elijah? How he appeals to God against Israel? How Elijah says, Oh, Lord. Lord, they've killed your prophets. They've demolished your altars. I alone am left. And they want to kill me. What does God reply? God says, I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed their knee to Baal. I've kept them, God says, but these are people who didn't do it. Both are at play. They've always been at play. Paul has no trouble saying to those in doubt and those in despair and those worried, God's picked you, He holds you, have no fear. Paul also has no trouble saying, hey, this is your own bed, you made it, now sleep in it, so you're going to make it right. If you're going to dance, you've got to pay the band. You reap what you sow. You make the choices. He says them both. Is there any point then in evangelizing? I mean, if God's done the choosing part, can we just like, whew, that takes away the burden of mission work. Good, because I got this pagan next to me at work. I've been scared to death to talk to about the Lord, and now just let him go to hell. <laughs> no. Is there any point in evangelizing Paul? We need to hear from you. He would say, absolutely. I'm the guy who wrote Romans 10. 13 through 17. Why are you asking me? Look at what I wrote. I'm the guy who actually wrote and said the following. Romans 10, 13 through 17. I'm the one who wrote, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how are they going to call on Him if they don't believe? And how are they going to believe if they haven't heard? And how are they going to hear if someone's not preaching. And how are they going to preach unless they go out there? I wrote that, Paul would say. He'd say, you bet you evangelize. God told you to. Well, yeah, but if it doesn't make... It, it, oh, what are you doing? Hey, God, look, I've decided I'm only following the commands that make a lot of sense to me in a net-net line. I don't like to waste my energy for you, Lord, so... I'm really only going to do those things that seem to me to make a difference in, in, uh, in the world. Um, you know, you may not understand it now, God, but you will in eternity. That's just a no-brainer. It's like being baptized. I don't have to be baptized, and I'm making a statement by that. Well, fine, but God told you to. Well, but he doesn't understand my situation. Oh, come on. Just do it. 
How can God be fair and send people to hell? I'd like Paul to answer that. And I think his answer would be, no one who goes to hell has any excuses. If you don't want to go to hell, accept Jesus. If you don't want to accept Jesus, then that's your choice. You, you know, it's the guy who came up to, to, to uh, wasn't Jonathan Edwards, it was Spurgeon, came up to Spurgeon and said, I don't like you preaching the doctrine of predestination because you're condemning me to hell and saying I don't have a choice. And Spurgeon said, do you want Jesus? And the guy said, no. Spurgeon said, then what are you complaining about? If you want Jesus, then you can have him. You don't have to complain. All right, well, what about the native Amazonians, the Amazon natives that have never heard? Paul would say, um, Scripture never answers that question. Neither does Paul. Oh, there are some things we know. Jesus said no one comes to the Father but by him. We know that without forgiveness of sin, there's no eternal life. Scripture does tell us that God reckons faith as righteousness. And uses as an example Abraham, who probably didn't have faith in the resurrected Christ because he probably didn't have that vision. At least we have no indication he did. But he did have faith and trust in God as he saw him. Now, does that mean that for infants who, are, are, who die before they, they have reached an age of faith and trust in Christ, does God condemn them to hell? I don't think so. I think that as they, 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 they live in God's bosom, they haven't made choices against God. Oh, are they sinful beings? Yes. Do they, are they born with sin? Yes. But God loves them and, and they're trusting little babies who trust to the best of their ability. It may not be God as they know God. It may just be the mama that God gave them. How about people without uh, mental facilities to really understand what happened? I've got dear friends who have a son and you just don't know how much his mind registers. Well, within the framework of who he is, I think there's room to say that you know, God is in the saving business. He's not looking to minimize the number that go to heaven. He wants to maximize it. He's not looking for technicalities to throw you out. He's looking for technicalities to bring you in. Now, does that mean that the Amazonian who doesn't know who God is, who doesn't, uh, uh, um, uh, you know, who may just think that God's the sun moving across the sky, or may just think there's something out there that, that they appeal to for life, does that mean God reckons that faith is righteousness? I don't know. Scripture doesn't say. But if he does, it's because the blood of Jesus covers them, whether they knew it or not. And if he doesn't, that's in his hands, not mine. But I do know I've been taught and you've been taught to go out and evangelize and take the good news. We haven't been given all the answers. We don't get to play God. We've been told what we need to do and we do it. And we trust God with the consequences. Does that make sense? Okay, next week. Are you ready to conquer sin? I want you to think really hard this week about some sin you've got in your life that you're having trouble with. And get ready to do something about it. We've got sanctification coming next week. First points for home. Number one. You know. Please know. 
Paul says, know that God has chosen you. Please know that He picked you. Don't worry about whether or not God cares and loves and is concerned about you. He does, He is, and He's got you. Second point. Now, act like it. You take responsibility. You walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. God chose you, so act like it. Because it's your decision and your responsibility. He gives you the tools. He gives you His Spirit. He gives you the Word. He gives you the fellowship. Now act like it. Final point for home. How unsearchable are God's judgments and how inscrutable are His ways? Let's don't put God in a box. I'm not saying don't think about it, don't try to make sense out of it, don't press the limits of your brain, don't try to read about it, don't try to study about it. I'm not saying any of that. Do all those things. But in the end, don't get upset if God's a little bit past you. Live in wonder and awe and bow before Him that someone beyond me cares that much about me. Would you pray with me? Lord, we do proclaim your ways inscrutable, your judgments unsearchable. We don't have all of the answers. You've given us clues, you've given us indications, but most importantly, you've given us the assurance and understanding we need to live daily in faith before you. And I pray for every heart in here to embrace you as Lord and Savior and to enjoy the life as your child, learning about you, seeking to to build our lives around you and your will until your kingdom comes. Through Jesus we pray, amen.